For our scripture reading this afternoon, we are turning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, starting at verse 13, and reading through verse 17. So Matthew 3, verse 13, this is the word of our Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Pray that you speak to us this afternoon. We pray that... uh, you give me um, clarity of, of mind and clarity of words, and pray that you, your spirit would grab the words and apply it to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. When we read this passage, most of us react as John the baptizer reacted in verse 15, I think. You who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire are coming to be baptized by me? My baptism is on account of repentance. I need to be, I need to be baptized by you. That's John's argument, and there's an argument that makes sense. Uh, why is Jesus being baptized by the servant? Why is the fulfiller being baptized by the preparer? Yet, it was, an important, it was important for Jesus' ministry that he be baptized by the one who came to prepare the way. As a matter of fact, he puts in terms of it is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. So in verse 13, Matthew says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John and the, at the Jordan to be baptized by him. That first word, then, refers to the time that John was baptized and teaching the crowds as described in the previous verses. As, as, as John is baptized and as John is telling them to repent, as John is telling them to repent for the, gospel, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, then at that moment Jesus comes to be baptized by him. And that's why Jesus' baptism is considered the beginning of his public ministry, even though this first year of his ministry is kind of quiet as far as public notoriety goes. For the first time, Jesus is doing something in public to disclose who he is and what his mission is. And we're going to see more of this in a moment. But here is at this moment that John says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. is a public demonstration that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the, to use modern uh, terms, the kickoff event for the public ministry of Jesus Christ. In verse 14, he says, And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and are you coming to me? 
But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. Now John the baptizer somehow realized that Jesus did not need to repent since he was sinless. That's really the basis for which that uh, for which John John says, "Why do you need to be baptized by me? My baptism is a baptism of repentance. You don't need to repent. You're sinless." Somehow John knew that. We don't know how he knew that, and we can kind of uh, come up with all kinds of different ideas. Perhaps John's parents had told him about how uh, Mary had told Elizabeth about the angel and how he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the families hang out, hung out as relatives sometimes do. Or perhaps it was divinely revealed to him. However, he knew, he knew that Jesus was sinless and didn't need to be baptized with a baptism that signified repentance, a baptism that was done on account of repentance. One thing was clear to John. A sinless person doesn't need to be baptized with a baptism that signifies repentance from sin. That was clear to John. And you notice that this is the second time that John says, no, you can't be baptized. Remember a couple weeks ago, there was a group of people that told them, why are you here? This is baptism for repentance. That's not you. No. Get out of here. He didn't. That was kind of implied in the, in the text. In the Greek. No, it wasn't there. Uh, but he had told the Pharisees and the Sadducees, no, you can't be baptized by me. And now he's telling that to Jesus. But there's a world of difference between those two, uh, two times that John is denying somebody baptism. D.A. Carson, his massive commentary on Matthew, says this. He says, earlier, earlier John had difficulty baptizing the Pharisees and Sadducees because they were not worthy of his baptism. So he denied them baptism because they weren't worthy. Carson continues, Now he has trouble baptizing Jesus because his baptism is not worthy of Jesus. So you can see there's a world of difference why John is saying, No, I can't baptize you. But despite John's protest, Jesus insists that he be baptized because that is what needs to happen. In verse 15, he says that, Permit it to be so, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The word righteousness in the Gospel of Matthew specifically, it means conforming to God's will. Righteousness is conforming, is doing God's will. That's how righteousness is defined. Let's not impose Paul's meaning of righteousness into Matthew. So this is what uh, Jesus is saying. when When Jesus says that he must be baptized by John in order to fulfill all righteousness, he's saying that it fulfills God's will. It is God's will that he be baptized by John. If, if John refuses, then he's going against God's will. And, and th- this is not some God secret will of God, but the declared will of God in the Scriptures, that John will be going against the Scriptures if he doesn't baptize Jesus. And then you wonder, where in the Scriptures say that? Well, kind of everywhere. Not in the particular verse, but in the theology of the scriptures. So how is that the case? How does being baptized with a baptism of repentance fulfill God's plans? Well, Jesus' baptism officially identifies him as the representative of the people he came to save. Baptism brings people together, and here John's baptism is bringing Jesus 
and all those that he represents together. They need to repent. So Jesus is baptized. He is publicly taking upon himself the role of the suffering servant, and he's doing that to fulfill all righteousness. And baptism then now signifies to him that he's united with those who indeed need repentance, and that he's going to stand for them on the cross. Remember when John and James says, come to him? Twice John and James do that. One, they send their mom, and then the other time they go by themselves and say, hey, can we have the best place in the kingdom? <laughs> Sometimes you wonder. I don't know. I'm always thankful for the testimony of the apostles. It just makes you feel a little better about yourself. Uh, because you too think, we, I too think those things. I too say those things. So it's, if the apostles said that, okay, it's, uh, I don't feel as bad. But they come and say, can, can we be on the right side and on the left side, the bad spots in the kingdom? And Jesus talks about, well, you don't know what you're asking. And it's not me, mine to give. And you have to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. Referring to the crucifixion. In, in which he paid for the sins of his people. But this is also, I think, a reference to John baptizing him, by, by which he is publicly unified, or unif- uh, yeah, unified to the people that he's going to represent on the cross of Calvary. I hope they will become clearer in a moment. In verse 16, we read, When he had been baptized... Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him, and suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The public ministry of Jesus Christ is clearly a Trinitarian ministry from the very beginning. It's about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Though what we find in these verses is not a full presentation of the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Trinity is the best way to explain what's going on here. Some look at this passage and say that there is one God, and that God sometimes represents himself as the Father, sometimes represents himself as the Son, and sometimes represents himself as the Spirit. And that he wears different masks, or as it were, there's a doctrine technically called modalism. And it's not something ancient. It's actually groups in the United States today that believe in that doctrine. That, uh, that uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not eternal. They're not coexistent. And they're not part of the same God or, or three persons uh, in the same God. But that's not what we see here. This is not God presenting himself as Father, Spirit, and Son, even though he is not that all the time. If God was doing that here, guess what he would be doing? He'd be lying. He'd be presenting himself as something that he's not. That's a lie. That's a deceit. And God doesn't lie. This is the triune God giving us a glimpse into his nature at the baptism of Jesus Christ. And the words of the Father to the Son and to the crowd are very important. In verse 17, where there the Father says, This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. See here in Matthew that he relates it in the third person. This is my beloved Son. Mark and Luke uh, 
tell us the same story, but they use the second person. You are my beloved son. And so which one is right? This is my beloved son or you are my beloved son? You say both because they're both in the Bible. Both are true. The father affirmed the son. You are my son. And the father revealed his son. This is my son. And notice how the words of the father allude to the words of God to his suffering servant. Combined with his, the father's word to the Messiah. And in, in, in this expression, what he says here. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The father is actually quoting his own word back to the people. And he's quoting, referring to Isaiah 41, verse, 42, verse 1. And he's referring to Psalm 2, verse 7. Where in Isaiah 42, he says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold. And that, that in the Septuagint, used the, the idea of whom I love, or my beloved one. And then in Psalm 2, 7, he says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. The Father is saying that the one who has just been united to those he represents through John's baptism is a suffering servant, but he's also the Son of God. And these are both titles that are given to Jesus Christ. But you know who else received those two titles? Israel. These are both titles that had also been given to Israel. Which tells us this, it tells us that the second and ultimate Israel is here. We tend to think of Jesus as the second and ultimate Adam, but he's also the second and ultimate Israel. Everywhere where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. As Israel is baptized in the Red Sea, so also has the second Israel been baptized by John. As Israel went to the wilderness to be tested, so the second Israel is about to go to the wilderness and be tested in chapter 4. Remember, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is going to the wilderness for 40 days to be tested. All this clearly shows that Jesus came to do what Israel, that is God's people, have never been able to do. And he would do that as their representative. And notice here that the father is pleased with the son. The father actually says, the words actually are this. Um, in the New King James, it says, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But the original language says, This is my beloved son in whom I was well pleased. Use a, a verbal tense called the aorist here. The father has been pleased with the son from eternity past. Jesus' ministry is the result of the Father's covenant with the Son, in whom the Father is pleased. The Father was pleased with the Son in eternity past. He was pleased with the Son in His life, death, and resurrection. And the Father is well pleased with the Son now as He stands in our place and intercedes for us. So your Father is pleased with His Son. Which means that your Father in heaven is pleased with you. Because you're united to him by faith. And in seeing the Son, he sees you. Jesus came as a suffering servant, and as such, he fulfilled all righteousness. And John's baptism of Jesus is the public declaration that he is indeed the suffering servant, who is also the Son of God, who will stand in the place of Israel, God's people, 
in the presence of God to redeem them from their own sins and from the wrath to come that John had warned them just a moment ago. So hold on to the suffering servant. Hold on to the Son of God. Hold on to the one who suffered on the cross for, on your behalf, but also rose from the dead on your behalf. Be encouraged that God is well pleased with him. And because he's well pleased with him, he's well pleased with you. Not because of any of your merits, but because of Christ Jesus who stands before him. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that you are God who saves and you saved us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that he stands before you, interceding for us, and that you are well pleased with him. Thank you that you are also well pleased with us. We, we thank you that you have opened our eyes to see that and to be joyful in the glory of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.